Amen. Well, I invite you to remain standing if you have your Bible. Feel free to grab it and make your way to the book of Job. And as mentioned this morning, we have a new character in the book of Job, Elihu. And so we will be looking at the entirety of Elihu's six-chapter monologue. But rather than start at the beginning, uh, we can start at the end of Elihu's speech. And so we will look at how he concludes his six-chapter monologue and then work our way to that conclusion. So our scripture reading for tonight will be Job chapter 37, verses 23 through 24. Job chapter 37, verses 23 and 24. And these are the words of the one and only God. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, indeed you are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all other gods, that all the gods of the peoples are false idols, but you alone are the living God. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in the majesty of your beloved Son, that from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, he is our great sympathetic high priest, that he comforts us in all of our distress, in the deepest of our afflictions, that he ever lives to intercede for us. And so we pray that your word would be a balm to our soul, that it would give us strength for the fight, that it would be food for our faith, that you would nourish us and care for us as you have promised to do. For you are our great Father who art in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. <clears throat> well, you would be uh, hard-pressed to find two more influential Americans of the early 20th century than that of Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Twain. And at the same time, you probably couldn't find two more dissimilar men than those two men. While Roosevelt would prefer clothes fit for a safari hunt, Mark Twain, you probably recognize, would be seen in his famous all-white suit and top hat. While Roosevelt preferred the strenuous life of hiking, hunting, boxing, Mark Twain cultivated a life of celebrity and ease. But perhaps the greatest of their differences resides in their piety. One time, Teddy was gazing up at the stars at night with a friend, and he was looking at the Andromeda galaxy, and he was just awestruck that there were hundred billions of stars, each star bigger than the Earth's sun, and just gobsmacked by it all. And then he turned to his friend and remarked, okay, I think we're small enough now. Let's go to bed. Mark Twain, on the other hand, would compose biting, sarcastic, even vitriolic prose hurled against God himself. Having lost his beloved daughter Susie, having lost his wife later in life, it seemed obvious he was stewing in bitterness. He once wrote, I wish God would keep private his admirations of himself. And I put those two men before you to highlight an incredibly simple 
but vital biblical truth for us to consider tonight. And that is that there are ultimately only two ways of response to God's majesty. Either fear or folly. To be like Isaiah, who cried out, Woe is me! I am undone, a man of unclean lips. Or to be like Pharaoh. And say, Who is this God that you speak of? I don't know this Lord. And you see Elihu, after six chapters of monologue, he caps it off with exactly that point that we read in verse 24. That before the majesty of God, man either fears God, humbles himself before God, or he is wise in his own eyes. He grows proud. And so we'll walk through these six chapters, obviously only skipping the rock across the pond, but we can break it down in two simple parts. We'll look at Elihu's anger, firstly, And secondly, we will look at Elihu's answer. So starting back in chapter 32, and you can look at verse 6 of chapter 32, and we'll notice right away with Elihu that he is of the young and restless variety. Verse 6, Elihu says, I am young in years, and you are aged. And we see that he has wisely shown deference to the older men by allowing them to speak first, as verse 4 says. But it comes clear that as he has been on the sidelines watching this tennis match, right, as Job volleys a reply and the three friends volley back a reply and he watches from the bleachers, he is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And as verse 5 says, quote, he burned with anger. In just the first five verses alone of chapter 32, it repeats the word anger four times, just so we get it. Elihu is angry. And so we should ask Elihu what God asked of Jonah. Elihu, do you do well to be angry? Because scripture, of course, is quite clear that there is righteous anger and that there is unrighteous anger. We know that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. As James says, we should be slow to anger, imitating the very God whose name is slow to anger that we should be like wet wood, that it takes a long time to ignite and start a fire. And far too often, our anger is aroused because we are personally inconvenienced, because of our pride, because of our self-interested passions, that it takes little more than a child spilling juice accidentally on the carpet, little more than a bad day at the office, and we come and we are fuming angry. But... If we dissect Elihu's anger, we can begin to see that it is twofold. Firstly, his anger is directed towards Job, as you see in verse 2, in that Job has justified himself rather than God. That Job has invested all his energy, all his eloquence, with the singular goal to prove himself to be in the right, and by implication, for God to be in the wrong. The second ember of Elihu's fire is against the three friends. You see that in verse 3. That, quote, they had found no answer, though they declared Job to be in the wrong. And so it's as if Elihu's going to say, look, if you're going to have the gusto to call this righteous man wrong, even at times implying that he is evil, then you had better substantiate those claims with some sound answers. And so while not perfectly Elihu is rubbing up against a kind of righteous anger. In his best moments, 
His desire is that God's honor would be upheld and that the truth would be spoken. And no doubt while he could use a dose of pastoral gentleness, I think one commentator put it well, when he said that Elihu is a wise man in the making and we could learn from his anger. And so you could ask yourself, not when was the last time you were angry, but when was the last time you were good and angry? That at root, you possessed the often sought for, but rarely found righteous anger. Because it is virtuous for Christians to be angered toward evil. And in fact, we are in the wrong if we are not angered by evil. Something is defective in our soul. If we come across, for instance, the evil perversions of the image of God, the murdering of the unborn, the dishonoring of God's name, and we react with anything less than a kind of righteous anger, a righteous antipathy to these things. And so Elihu, in his best moments, directs such anger towards correcting the three and guiding Job towards greener pastures. It is very telling that while Job's three friends, as we'll see, will be rebuked by God, there is no rebuke whatsoever towards Elihu, at least implying that his speech is commendable. And so there's a word on Elihu's anger. But let us turn now to his actual answer. And we could simplify Elihu's answer into three parts that I think are uniquely helpful in times of suffering. God speaks, God is just, and lastly, God is majestic. Firstly, God speaks. It is, of course, in our times of suffering that we often begin to question God's nearness. As Job himself had said, I go forward and God is not there. I go backwards and I don't perceive him. You can flip to chapter 33, verse 14, as Elihu begins to unfold for Job that it's not God's revelation, but man's hearing that is the matter. Verse 14, he says, Why, Job, do you contend against God? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Like many of you at our house, we've got a a full house full of children, never a dull moment, never a quiet moment. And so when I need to study or focus in some kind of relative quiet, I put on what is surely the greatest invention ever, and that is noise-canceling headphones. So I can put on these noise-canceling headphones, flip a switch, and all exterior noise is drowned out. But many a time, my wife has been calling to me from another room. She doesn't see me, even elevating her voice. And I'm in complete oblivion because I don't hear. It's not that she's not speaking. It's that the noise is canceled on my end. And how true it is that in suffering, it has that kind of muffling effect upon the soul. As Job said, I search everywhere, but I do not find God. I do not hear from God. And Elihu reminds Job, God is there and he is not silent. He'll go on to say, even reconsider that your pain does not mean that God has withdrawn. In fact, your pain may be the very ways of God's redemption. Look at verse 19. Elihu says, man is rebuked with pain on his bed. As the book of Hebrews says, all discipline seems painful for the moment, 
but later yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this is what the three friends missed. That to, to them, pain is only retribution, right? It is only tit for tat. It is only punishment. But Elihu says God's ways are the ways of redemption. Notice verse 26. At the end of the tether, at the end of the pain, Elihu says, then man prays to God and God accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. He's telling Elihu, or he's telling Job, Christian, this truth is for you in your suffering silence. God is there, and he is not silent. Secondly, not only does God speak, God is just or righteous in all of his ways. Once again, it is so often in our hardships, in our trials, that we are most tempted to subtly charge God with injustice. That God has maybe somehow all of a sudden declared war with me. As Job said earlier in chapter 13, why have you hidden your face from me and counted me as your enemy? And what a potent temptation that is. That if I start to believe that God has treated me unjustly in my marriage, in my work, in my friendships, in my relationships, in my health, in my children, then before long my trust is compromised. It is one of the most ancient of temptations, isn't it? Recall how Satan came to Adam and Eve and enticed them. As if to say, your God, who you thought was so good, who you thought was treating you well, it turns out there's this dark side to God that you didn't know about. He is, in fact, withholding good from you, and he is treating you unrighteously. And it's as if Elihu was going to say, Job, don't entertain for a single moment that God would treat you with enmity. Do not align yourself with the serpent's mentality. And you can go to the next chapter, chapter 34. Elihu says as much. Verse 12, in plain speak, he says, Job, of a truth, God will not, cannot do wickedly. The Almighty will not, cannot pervert justice, for he is ruler over all. And that is a truth that puts the Christian in the most stable of positions. That it roots faith not in circumstances, but roots faith in the character of our unchanging God. That our God, who cannot change, who is immutable, who is righteous in all of his ways. As was said of our Lord Jesus, that when he suffered, he continued entrusting himself to God who judges how who judges justly. That even as the Lord Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew by faith that he would be vindicated by the just judge who was his father in heaven. And he has left us that example to follow. Indeed, in our suffering, we probably don't think to reach into the divine medicine cabinet and pull out justice we'd probably sooner reach in and pull out God's mercy or God's compassion. And indeed, yes and amen. But you can catch the point to know that God has covenanted with us to be our God. The covenant of the God who cannot, will not do wickedly to see us as his beloved children in Christ. Then it beckons of me unwavering faith and trust and dependence. Well, thirdly, Elihu continues on on with his answer and says, God speaks, 
God is just, and most of all, God is majestic. And he begins to reorient Job to this truth. If you look at chapter 35, he starts to challenge Job's pragmatism. Verse 3, he says, Why have you said, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? As if Job said, man, the only thing a life of godliness has gotten me is a life of grief. As Job has raised the question, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they grow mighty in power? And here you start to see Elihu work as a kind of reorienter. You probably had the experience, you're driving down the road, you make a wrong turn, and your GPS interrupts you, shames you, says, get back onto the right path. And Elihu comes, and he is a kind of reorienter. As if to say, Job, I hear your pleas of righteousness, granted, but it's time to lift up your eyes. And you can see in chapter 36 that three times he implores of Job something that the three friends never once implored of Job, encapsulated in this word, behold. Verse 5, behold, God is mighty. Verse 22, behold, God is exalted in power. Verse 26, behold, God is great and we know him not. As if to say, Job, take a minute, look off of yourself and look up. Look up and behold the majesty of God. And that is not easy, particularly in times of suffering. I think C.S. Lewis said it rightly when he described just how intractable suffering is when he said, You don't merely suffer, but you also have to keep on thinking about the fact that you are suffering, right? Everywhere you go, everything that you do, there's this fog hovering about you. And so Elihu is going to come and offer the cure of divine majesty. And let me just read how Elihu closes his speech to me in one of the most unexpected of ways. Chapter 37, and I'll begin in verse 2. And just hear the word of the Lord. Elihu says, verse 2, Keep listening, Job, to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven when he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. Verse 5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Verse 8, the beasts go into lairs and they remain in their dens. From its chambers come the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. One wonders... One would go through the mind of the modern-day psychologist as Elihu is offering this kind of therapy to Job. And they say, um, Job, uh, or Elihu, this man has lost everything. <laughs> this man has lost all his possessions. This man has lost his sons and his daughters, and you're talking to him about the weather? About snow falling on the earth? <laughs> about beast?" Grazing in the field about ice being formed? He's in intolerable pain, and all you have to prescribe for him are raindrops and lightning? Where did you get your degree in counseling? But Elihu, I believe, is right. 
is oh so right. Because just watch where he's going with the snow and the ice and the rain falling. He goes to the deep, deep majesty of God that compels nothing less than awe and wonder. Verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. It is no different than Teddy Roosevelt looking up at a hundred billion stars and stopping to consider the majesty of God. It is no different than the psalmist in Psalm 8 looking up at the heavens saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? It is no different than Jesus Christ saying in the throes of anxiety, stop and consider the lilies of the field. Your great God cares for those and you would doubt that your heavenly Father cares for you. At moments, Job has become so enamored with defending his own righteousness, he has yet to stop and consider the majesty of God. And so now, Elihu can conclude his speech and say, Job, my friend, God is not silent. God is righteous in all of his ways. And this God is most majestic Therefore, verse 24, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. May the fear of the Lord be your comfort. And so as we close, I have but one exhortation for us this evening, and it is exactly that. It is to stop and consider the majesty of our great God. That no doubt a challenge for us in this distracted age is to have disciplined, purposeful stops of prayer, of meditation, of considering the wondrous works of God. That our great God promises, promises to keep man in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon Jehovah. And with our New Testament eyes, we can see how everything that Elihu has outlined is fulfilled most in the Lord Jesus Christ. God speaks, as Hebrews 1 says, that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his beloved Son, the radiance of the glory of God. That God is just. That nowhere is that more perfectly displayed than upon the cross of Calvary. And that if God did not spare his own son, will he not also graciously give us all things with and through Jesus Christ? And the majesty of God is most displayed not in the Andromeda galaxy, not in the billion of stars above, but most clearly displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Stop and consider the majesty of Christ so that you too could say, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong, body and soul, to my loving Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself, that you are the God who has spoken to us, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God, the very righteousness of God. 
and that you have given us eyes to see, that we might behold his glory and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray indeed that we would meditate upon your word, your law, day and night, night and day, that we might be like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Well, let's stand as we continue to worship as we sing.